And that's because you're such a good father. And I just love you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how this book came to pass. And so just kind of bear with me through this because it's a little bit boring, but I have to kind of set the stage for where I'm going. So when I left here, I went to a church called Living Faith, and the pastor, Barry Lubby, was um, a Rama graduate also under Dad Hagen. So when you hear him say Dad Hagen, we know where they came from. It's kind of a different Rama than today. Actually, it might not be, but I don't know. But anyway, but that's... They think it is. So they talk about dad, right? So um, so I went, So and then he worked for Kenneth Copeland for years in South Africa. And then the Lord sent him to Virginia to start a church, and then that's where we ended up. So um, in, in this church, there was something called um, the Training Center, Living Faith Ministry Training Center. And because I love the Word of God, I I joined the training center. It's a four-year, it's kind of like a college course, and a lot of it I knew. The first and second year, I'm like, I know this, but I just love it, so I don't mind hearing it again and hearing and hearing. Um, But between the third and the fourth year, what they do is they call you in to the office because the fourth year Along with your studies, they want you to launch your ministry. It's called an intern project. They figured if you've had this much word, you need to be used somewhere. You're not just going to come out and just do nothing. So, um, and they they really get to know you during this time. There's probably like seven or eight or nine, ten pastors that teach you for the four years. and And you do reports and you have to like practice preaching and it, that was grueling but um anyway so they call you into the office and they go okay let's talk about what you're going to do next year and that's part of your grade you have to do something in ministry and they they don't micromanage you but they oversee you because they figured by now you pretty much know God and if you screw up you and him can fix it so they do oversee you they let you fall and make mistakes because they'll go, well, then what is God saying to you now if you mess up? So you have to do a monthly report and, you know, say the good, bad, and the ugly in it. And then they'll kind of help you through it. But it's a really amazing tool that they do. But so I go to my first meeting through the summer. And I talk to the dean of the school. And she goes, yes, I really believe that you are called to teach. And you are a faith teacher. So I'm like, yes, because I love it. I mean, I could just, like, live talking about faith. I love it. Um, so she goes, I want you to go home and write me a six-week curriculum. If you were teaching faith in the training center, I want it to be from day one all the way to the end. So I went home. Now, I'm not a writer. But I, you're so full of God at the end of this that it just kind of flew out of me. Within two days, was it two days? I had written the whole curriculum. I'm like, I'm ready. Okay, so I go back to my second meeting, and another pastor goes, you know, we have so many faith teachers in this church. I mean, really, you're in living faith church. We would like for you to do something a little bit different. So um, she said, she says, they had heard the testimony of Brooke. I had um, spoken a couple times at the ladies' ministry um, teaching, and Brooke had danced, and, you know, so everybody kind of knew the story. So they said, you have so, we have a lot of parents in this church that have special needs children. So we want you to have a support group. And she goes, you can teach your curriculum, you know, just teach it in a more living room setting instead of a classroom setting. So being the good student that I was, I learned to submit under authority. That was module year three, module two, submit under authority. So I'm like, okay, I will do it. But I didn't like the idea of a support group. I tell you the reason why. When you live calling those things that be not as though they are, you do not have a place where you go and sit every week and cry and talk about what the diagnosis is. And so the whole time I was doing that, I'm like, I don't know about this. This doesn't, this is like an oxymoron to me. I'm not, I don't want to talk about it. But so anyway, so, but I did it. And so they says, okay, you need to come up with a name. You need to come up with the people who's going to help you, the time, everything. They just let you go. 
They just go do it. Go do your ministry. So I did, but I had to come up with a name, and I'm in the shower one day. I don't know why the Lord does this to me. He does in the shower. You know, I can sit for hours in the chair going, speak to me, Lord. But anyway, I was in the shower, and, <laughs> and so he goes, I want you to name the group Journey of Hope. And I'm like, okay, I'm a faith person here. He goes, now your next book is going to be called Journey of Faith. But this, the book you're going to write about Brooke is called Journey of Hope, and I want you to name your group this. He goes, because you are going to go through a period of learning what it was like and reliving hopelessness. So, and, you know, God is such a good God. He knows what we need, even though we're fighting and kicking the whole time. But, um, and I have to tell you, I try to teach my, my curriculum. <laughs> Every week, I'm like, okay, we're going to start from the beginning. But the problem with this is I had the group on Saturday mornings, and it's a support group. So I had anywhere from 5 to 30 people come on different Saturdays. Nobody stayed consistent. There might have been a few people that were consistent the whole time, but they were the people out of our church, and they already knew what I was talking about. So in the, the good thing is people came from all over northern Virginia, non, non-believers, different denominations, different backgrounds. They just found out there was a, a support group for a place that they could come and connect. And so after me trying to teach on this consistent basis that nobody got because they, I couldn't build upon a foundation. So I would have to start over month three from... Anyway, so finally, I just let it be a support group. I... <laughs> I just facilitated the moms, and there was a couple dads that came. But I have to tell you, I sat there month after month, and all I did was open the door, because I had the key, and I made the coffee. And they came in, and they all supported each other. They prayed for each other. They cried. They encouraged each other. They all met after group. They, their kids met. Their husbands met. And I'm like, I, they didn't need me anymore. So I'm like... I mean, I tried to teach it, and it was good teaching, but, um, yeah, I I couldn't build a foundation. So I finally decided to let it, after a year and a half, and we're only really required to do a year, but I kept it going. And I'm like, I finally went to the pastor. I'm like, you know, I don't know if this is what I'm called to do. So I I kind of let the group wind down, and they're all still meeting. Some of them are still meeting, and they're all best friends. But So I guess I did something good. (laughs) But, anyway. There was two things I learned during this time. First of all, I'm not a support group leader. (laughs) There are people really gifted at that. There's people that are really gifted, like being nurses. Is there any nurses in here? I was a candy striper once, and I think they fired me, because I'm like, here's your magazine. Um, But there are people that are very gifted at that. But it it just kind of like irritated me, because I was trying to take them from a place where they thought they were and bring them to another place, and a lot of them, because they weren't used to my teaching, they weren't getting it. I still believe that there were seeds planted, but, and then I learned another thing. You cannot teach faith to people who do not think they need a change, and I'm saying that because, and There are really amazing programs out there in the world right now. And, you know, the advocates for these programs is much needed. Because, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, because 30 years ago, I had no support group. And I used to hate it, but now I'm like it was a blessing in disguise because it was just me and God. And that was it. And so... But there is support groups, there's therapies. You can go online and find anything you want now. And believe it or not, there was no internet 30 years ago. Can y'all believe that? There wasn't, you young people. You don't even know. (laughs) You had to go to the library and pull out the card file. Anyway, there are Special Olympics. There's the Tim Tebow ball. Brooke and I are so excited to someday volunteer for that ball. It's amazing what is out there. But what happens with all these programs, and hear my heart, because I don't want to offend anybody ever, but what happens to these man-made 
programs is you come to the place where you stay in a comfort zone. And you ne- it, it, what it does is it helps you get through life. And I know the day-to-day struggle. I know. And, you know, within my group, I had a mom that had teenage, nonverbal autistic sons. She had to get a certified babysitter just to go to the grocery store or to go on a date. And she was one of the ones that would just come and cry because she just wanted a day off. Then I had, a, I had three families with Down syndrome children. I had one family with cerebral palsy child. I had several families with ADHD children. One child, he was in seventh grade and got expelled. And the mom goes, I don't know what to do with him now. She, was, she worked. She goes, what do I do? So I know the hopelessness. I know it's real. I know that day to day. I, you know, I'm at the end I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, Seth, but I'm at the end now, and I'm looking at victory. But as I wrote this book, the Lord had me reliving all my hopeless moments. And sometimes it's like childbirth for you women. It is just horrible, the pain. But then in the end, you completely forget it, and you have another one. It's like, (laughs) are we crazy? I mean, there's medicine now for it. But anyway, (laughs) that was free. But anyway, what what happens, though, these man-made programs keeps us from ever thinking outside that box of what if God could completely heal that child? What if you look at your child one day with Down syndrome and they're completely healed? I mean, in the te- and when I talked to the, some of the parents like that, I actually offended them because they think, you just don't love my baby where they are. And I'm like, I love your baby. God loves your baby. But let's think outside that box. Yes, there's programs to do things better and easier and will help babysit. But let's just imagine that they are completely healed. And because some of the moms, once they got these diagnoses, that became their new purpose in life. It became it almost to a point of being an idol. And hear my heart, I get it. If you have autistic children, I get it. It's hard. And I'm not being insensitive. I'm just saying there's a higher place. And it's really is something I call a radical, audacious faith to even believe it. And I am an audacious faith person because I'm not going to settle for that. But anyway, and it becomes like a survival mechanism. Sometimes you have to have something to survive, and it's okay. In that comfort zone, and I talk about a lot through the book, God is with you. It's It's not like God is pleased with you when you get down here to victory. He is there in the day to day, the slobbering. I, Brooke just found out this last service, sorry. It's in the day of licking the floor in the laundry mat. It's in the day of your child running in circles and needing stitches. In the, he had stitches twice in like six months. I'm like, it's a, he, he's in the day to day. And even while you're growing in faith, and even when you just have days where you go, I just don't care anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. It's too hard. He's there. And he's always loving you to push you higher, to push you higher, to go, come with me. But sometimes we just shut down in that place and go, I don't want to do it anymore. And that's okay. He loves us anyway. But anyway, so there's no condemnation. But anyway, so I, I, after I kind of stopped the group, I really spent a lot of time with the Lord. First of all, he was talking to me about hopelessness. And I said, okay, what do I do next? I've got all this training in me. I've been in this church. I've been in that church. I'm just sitting here, like filling my bird feeder every week. So um, a a friend of mine came up to me one day in church, and she, she was a year behind me in training center. So she was just entering her fourth year ministry project. Um, And she said, and she was, she's an author of several books. She's actually writes for Christian magazines and all kinds of stuff. And the Lord had told her to start a writing group. 
So she comes up to me one Sunday and she goes, now, the Lord has told me to write a starter writing group and he um, pointed you out to me last week and if this is not from God, just ignore it. But he told me that you have a book in you and you need to start writing it. And I'm like, oh, okay. So she goes, I'm starting a writing group. And I'm like, yay, I'm going to learn commas from semicolons. And I'm going to learn the whole process of writing. So I joined the group. I knew God was talking to me. It was the perfect timing. And so I get to the group, and I'm in it for like six months. We did write a little book of short stories. It was called A Compilation of Stories. And I wrote the story of Morgan. But um, that's another story. But anyway, um, so... One day, oh, and I didn't learn writing. It was a support group. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I needed to learn this. So, but one day, I just sat down on my couch, and I put the computer in my lap. I didn't even get pen and paper first, which all through training center, I would write with pen and paper and then do it on the computer. That was so old, like 90s. But anyway, so I just sat down one day, and I wrote Four chapters in two hours. It was like, as soon as I, it was like Moses splitting the Red Sea. As soon as I started, it just went. And I'm like, this is, the, the, the anointing that I was waiting on hit me. And I'm like, okay, God, this is cool. You're going to write the story and I'm just going to type. And it was so cool. It's like it took me less time to write this book than to get the thing published. But that's a different story. But anyway, but, you know, sometimes I wondered and I wondered through this time, did, did the pastor miss God by having me start a support group? And then I go, I mean, they are all spirit-led. I'm like, did I miss God by saying, okay, I'll do this support group, even though I don't think it's what I'm called to do. But I didn't. I needed to go through, relive the hopelessness because I wrote this book not out of the place of victory, which is the last chapter, but out of hopelessness. So my audience through this is people that are in a hopeless state because you cannot teach faith if you don't have a glimmer of hope. Anyway... So, we're going to talk about it a little bit. Hopelessness. I looked it up. A feeling or a state of despair, having lost all hope, having no possibility of change, an impossible situation. Hopelessness paralyzes the soul. Us faith people can quote, and you don't even need to put it up there because I bet you everybody could quote it. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We know that. But hope is a substance. You've got to be able to touch it. You've got to see it. If you have no hope, you can't jump to the next section of the the verse. I had a father come up to me at a leadership um, luncheon one day, and he was a faith man. He had a, his daughter was one of the daughters in the group. Um, she had Down syndrome, and him and his wife were calling those things that be not as though they are. They were, they were speaking life into her every second of the day. And he goes, why did you call your group Journey of Hope? And I said, I just told him what the Lord told me, but I said, you cannot talk to a person about faith I just said that. Until you have given them a glimmer of hope that something in their life can change. If there is no hope for the future, then there is no faith to build upon it. People actually die from hopelessness. I mean, the nursing homes are full of people hopeless. And I didn't say this in first service, but, you know, I watched my mom for the last several years. My mom was a go-getter. When we took her license away from her, she just, like, gave up. She was one of these people, even in old age, I'd call her at 11 o'clock at night, and I'm like, where are you? I went to Walmart. I'm like, mom... But she was such a free, independent spirit. Once she got in the nursing home and we took her license away and she had to wear a diaper and she sat in a wheelchair, she just died. 
I mean, within a year, she died. There was really nothing that physically wrong with her. She had osteoporosis. Her mind was sharp. She would tell you up to the last day, do you know Jesus? I'm like, oh. she used to ask everybody every time somebody come in. But she was sharp. I mean, it, it's amazing, but it's just a point of hopelessness. What do I have? And I actually, I actually prayed. I said, Lord, just take her. This is no life. So anyway, that was for free for sure. But anyway, there is an estimated 44,000 suicides every year in the United States. 121 a day. I don't know. I know there's statistics of what is teenagers versus what is military men and what is elderly. But that should not be. There's a church on every corner. And people are dying because they're hopeless. They cannot see past their circumstance. And they go, what the heck? This is not worth it. Anyway, hopelessness to me, and I thought about it a lot during this time. I says, it's like a dark room. You're sitting in a dark room and there's, I mean, I'm talking about black, where there is nothing. You can't see spots. And you don't know where the wind, there's no windows. You don't know where the door is. And that's where you sit. You can hear voices on the outside of the room, but you're just sitting in it. This is life. Until somebody cracks that door open, and it only takes a sliver where you all of a sudden look to the side and go, there's the door. That's the light. And then you're able to get up all out of that black hole and walk toward the door. You're like, there's the door. I'm walking out. Because I'm going to tell you, once you know where the door is, you're not going to stay in that black room. So it's, that's what hope is. Hope is like the sliver to make you go, I'm going through that door, and I'm not going back in that room. Anyway, <clears throat> oh, I'm done with that page. Praise God. Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes a heart sick, but desire fulfilled is the tree of life. <clears throat> I had to go look up hope deferred. I didn't know what it meant, but hope deferred <clears throat> means to put off for another time. And you put it off, and you put it off, and you put it off, and to the, finally, you've come to a place of hopelessness, going, I've put it off for so long. This is, I'm just going to now settle for where I am. It distorts our vision. It produces fear and doubt. It makes us uncertain of ourselves and God. And it causes us to settle for less. And my favorite, it robs us of our ability to believe for anything truly supernatural. You know, well, I'm going to say something. Don't get mad at me. But I'm going to leave Tuesday, so I'll let... (laughs) I'll let pastor fix it. (laughs) But most Christians live in that place. Okay. Most Christians, and I'm going to tell you, you guys are in an amazing church because there's a lot of churches that don't even teach any of this. But, but. I'm going to say we or they. I won't say they. That's rude. We, we settle for the place we're in, and we say, oh, praise God, I have a job, barely getting by, but thank God I've got a job. Oh, yes, I'm very, very sick, but I've got 47 medicines that I can take, so praise God. <laughs> or praise God I'm still alive because I'm in a wheelchair with a diaper on, and, you know, I need my di- You know what I'm saying? It's like we settle. We settle for this place. Um. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. God wants to enter in to that hopeless, hope-deferred world. He's just waiting. He's giving us everything that we need to not stay in that place. He's like, just ask me. I will come with you. Yes, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to come with you, and I'm going to help you, and I'm going to pick you up when you fall. But we're going to get up tomorrow, and we're going to do it again, and then we're going to do it again. So don't settle for the place you're in. And if you're on medicines, you know, please hear my heart. I'm not here to take away your medicines. I'm just here to say there is a better, there is a higher place. 
I don't want to live, you know, the next 60 years in a nursing home going, well, at least we live longer. Well, that's not living. Anyway, um, what hope is, hope is a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to change. Hope is the incubator of where faith is formed. I'm going to say that again. Hope is the incubator of where faith is formed. In Hebrews, hope is pronounced tikvah. It is referred to as a cord used as an attachment. In Psalms 42, and we don't need to go there. Y'all know the story. David is hiding in a cave with his 400 men. And he's hiding from Saul who's trying to kill him. Well, this is a really nice cave, I'm sure. I'm sure it's got bearskin rugs. They've got drawings on the walls. He's got a big screen TV. It's the first man cave. And I bet you, because it's David's, it's cool. Like, think about it. But he knows down on the inside of him that that is not, even as good as that man cave is, as cool and groovy as it is, it's not the place he was destined to be. He was settling for something instead of saying, I am destined to live in a palace as a king. I mean, how many times in our life do we sit in this man cave being cool when God's going, come out of the man cave. I've got a palace for you. But you've got to believe to get out of it. So he asked himself, soul, why are you so downcast? Soul, why are you so disquieted in me? Why are you settling for this place? Anyway, so then he answers himself. Do y'all ever talk to yourself? I talk to myself all day. Me and God talk all day. Soul, why are you so downcast? Get your act together. This is not who you are called to be. We all have circumstances and situations in our life, and it's not just special needs. It is, can be a failing marriage. It can be a job going nowhere. It can be, you know, wayward children. It can be a dream that you've never, it, you're hope deferring it for so long. You just go, whatever, I'll settle for maybe a half a dream. So that's, what cave are you sitting in? <clears throat> My next book, the one that was supposed to have been first, <laughs> Journey of Faith, starts actually in a very hopeless place. It starts in a tunnel in hell, and that's about as hopeless as you could get. But during the times of being here in the other building, I was homeless at times. I was jobless. I was husbandless. I had, I was on food stamps, and I was on welfare, and I was even suicidal. There was a day, it was a Wednesday night, that I said, I'm done. Uh, that's going to be in the next books because I don't want to cry. But I learned how to tithe in this church from food stamps. I, I went to Daryl one day, and I'm like, how do I tithe? I'm getting, I was on the WIC program, and I was getting milk and cereal and cheese or something. He goes, then bake somebody, make somebody a meal. He goes, I said, how do I tithe off of something that's given to me like that? I gave families gallons of milk. I'm like, that was my first tithe. And it, I mean, I got job. I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself. I got jobs that I don't qualify for during that time. It was crazy. God is just crazy awesome. I mean, it's like people came up to me one day and go, would you like to teach in my Christian school? And I'm like, I don't have a degree. And they go, well, you look like you have a degree. And I'm like, what does that look like? I mean, it's like what I carry. I'm carrying the presence of God. Anyway, but being in this church in that suicidal, homeless, jobless state, I was thrown that cord, and I was, I was given that glimmer of light. And 
through every single one of those hopeless situations, I had to make a choice. I'm not going to stay. I'm not staying in that state. Because if you don't make a decision to go, I'm not staying there, then you'll just stay. And you might as well just die. Sorry, but it's true. It's like when you're in such a place of hopelessness, it's why people just kill themselves. You're not getting into a better place. Just stay and get hope and live an abundant place here. You don't leave the earth. Take the kingdom of God and just change. Change the atmosphere. Change your life. It's the word. Anyway. Romans 4.18 says, In hope against hope, Abraham believed. In the face of absolute hopelessness, he believed anyway. He had hope anyway. We have a saying in our house. I was telling the first service, I hate flying. I don't like it. I got to be delivered, so please lay your hands on me in a minute. (laughs) But I really have, like, anxiety when that plane is taken off. I have lavender on my feet. I snort it. I've got it in my hair. I mean, I'm like, I don't drink. I'm like, but I need a vodka. I just need, it's just like, just knock me out. Wake me up when we land. But, but I love to travel. So unless I'm going to like drive around the world, I'm just going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it in fear. I'll just snort my lavender and just say, wake me up when I get there because I'm going to Aruba. I'm going to St. Thomas, even though we did that on a ship. But it's like, I'm, I don't want to just stay. I don't want to stay in my house because I'm afraid to fly. If you're afraid to fly, we'll pray for you too. We need to get delivered from this. Because there's places to go. I'm going to give you guys my six-week curriculum in 30 seconds. Week number one, get into the Word of God and find out your identity. First thing, I tried to teach a lady one time in my group. We were home group leaders, and I tried, I gave her every scripture I knew, and I typed them for her, and I said, say these every day, 14 times a day, say them to the east, to the west, to the north, say them, say them, say them, say them. She did no change, no change. Oh, I went to God about it. I mean, I did this with her for months and months, and no change. Finally, I went to the Lord, and I said, it's not working. Your word works. I know your word works. She goes, she doesn't know who she is. She's just being a parent, regurgitating what you're telling her to say. He goes, you can't give her a formula. The kingdom of God in you is a a stance. It's who you are. It's how you live. It's how you talk. But you have to know your identity to know that. You just can't regurgitate 47 scriptures and go, okay, it didn't work. That's week one. Week two, search the promises of God. Get them on the inside of you and know your kingdom covenant. We are in a covenant, and it's a kingdom covenant. It doesn't go along with the world. It's better. I think Justin's coming. Oh, Um, Put the word of God in your mouth. You guys have had Mary Fran. This is Mary Fran 101. Declare and decree to your circumstance. I've read her book two years in a row. Declare and decree. Talk to your circumstances. Talk to your children. Not like, I'm not, talk to it. Talk to your your situation. You are the prophet of your future. Speak it. We were designed to call those things that be not as though they are. Call them in. Refuse to be a victim of your circumstances. That is a pet peeve of mine. Refuse to be a victim. Do not allow your circumstance tell you how your life is going to be. Your circumstance does not dictate who you are. You are a child of God. You are, oh, I'm jumping ahead. Tell Satan to get the hell out of your house. I learned that here. I have to tell you something for just a minute because he always talks about me. We were in the other building and it was a Wednesday night and I don't know how many people were there. But 
Pastor Daryl goes, I'm going to teach you guys how to walk your floors. And he picked, he would call people out and goes, what's, what's your circumstance? And they'd say something. He goes, come here. He goes, take my arm. You're going to start doing what I'm doing. He made us walk and declare and decree. He made us walk it and talk it. Amen. It's not something you're sitting there. And you know what? Yeah. I was taught in training center, you don't have to scream at the devil, but doesn't it feel good? Yeah. It does. You can whisper to the devil, go, get out of my life. But it just feels good to say, get. I opened my house, my front door of my house one day. I'm like, get the hell out of my house. My kids ran. They thought I was cussing. I'm like, mama's cussing. I'm like, and take all your friends with you. And Daniel and Brooke are like, even the dog hid under the bed. But there's a point in your life where you get fed up. You go, I'm not staying in this place. I am not staying in this cave. I'm not staying in this comfort zone. As good as it is, as great as that bearskin rug is, I'm not staying. I'm not staying there. But that's a decision that you have to make. And once you make that decision, just walk forward and shut that door. Don't go back. I don't care. Just lock it. Tell somebody, put a padlock on it. I'm not going back to Egypt. I'm not. I'm not going back to slavery. Gosh, I like passed my notes. <laughs> Will it be easy? Nope. There are going to be days, it ju you just don't feel like it. There's going to be days where you go, this is just too hard. There's going to be days when it's too rainy to come to church. And our area is too snowy. There's going to be days when the wind is going to blow. There's going to be days when a deer runs in front of your car. The dog is going to puke. The child's going to lose his shoes. Just come anyway. You know, drive over the dead deer and just come. Clean up the puke. Brooke. Brooke puked on every dress the whole first year of her life to the point where it was like, <sighs> sorry, that's another story she didn't know. <laughs> Just come anyway. You know, sometimes it's like, I can't find my Bible. My Bible's too heavy. I don't have a notepad. There's no ink in my pen. I don't have a magic marker. You know, you don't even need a Bible anymore. We've got Bible apps. Just tell Siri. Siri, where's Hebrews 11.1? 1, and what does it mean? I mean, it's like ridiculous. We have no excuse. I mean, really. Sorry. But there are days when you just say, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to get on that plane anyway, and I'm going to do it in fear. I'm going to put the Word of God in my mouth. I'm going to find out who I am. I don't care what it looks like. I'm going to speak it anyway. There's going to be days where people look at you like you're a lunatic <laughs> because you go, I'm calling those things that be not as though they are, and they go, you're weird. I don't care because you do get to a point where you go, the Word of God says... That he came to give us life and life abundant. If I'm not living in that life abundant, then I need to do something. It's not God. It's not God. This does not work. No. It's something's wrong with our mouth or our thinking or we just need to do it longer. I want a quick fix too. It would be nice. I mean, I speak every day and go, you are skinny. Every day. You donut, you're a liar. I actually don't like donuts, but. What is really funny is Brooke is declaring to gain weight. And I'm like, girl, here. There is. So whatever your cave is. <laughs> I'm going to read a story. Did you hear the story before? 
I never heard it before, not uh, before this morning. Well, I got it out of a book somewhere, but it was cool. It's a true story. The man's name is a missionary that settled in, uh, he's actually a Pentecostal missionary who settled his family in the Arizona desert. So I'm just going to read it from the story. It says, one night a fierce storm struck with rain, hail, and high wind. After a long night, feeling sick and fearing what he might find, at daybreak, Samuel went to survey their loss. The hail had beaten the garden into the ground, and the house was partially unroofed. The hen house had blown away, and dead chickens were scattered everywhere. Destruction and devastation were as far as he could see. While standing dazed, evaluating the mess and wondering about the future, he heard a stirring in the lumber pile that was the remains of the hen house. A rooster was climbing up and continued until he had mounted the highest part of the board pile. That old rooster was dripping wet and most of his feathers had blown away. But as the sun came up over the eastern horizon, he flapped his bony wings and proudly crowed, announcing a new day. That old rooster got up and climbed on that wood pile because it was his nature to do so. He didn't look around and go, oh my God, I've lost all my hens. He didn't look around and make a decision. He just did what he instinctually knows to do. He just said, this is, he didn't say anything. He just did it. How much more instinctual nature of God is in us? God never created us to live in defeat and destruction. He didn't. 1 John 5, 4 says, everyone born of God has overcome the world. God has imparted to, into each and every one of us an instinctual nature to rise above our circumstances. It is in our DNA to live in abundance. We were created to rise above every single circumstance. Or what Jesus did was for naught. I mean, we don't live in the Old Testament where there's hopelessness anymore. But even then, we could have like gone and sacrificed something and gotten through it. But we don't even need to do that anymore. Jesus has done it. We don't, all we do is declare and decree what he did. Then I can get into my place of victory. I no longer sit at the bottom of the cross and pray. The cross, it, it's not even, it, it's not even, it's irrelevant right now. We are seated at the right hand of the Father and we declare and decree how our life is supposed to be. I don't sit there every day and go, oh, please heal my daughter. Oh, please fix my finances. Jesus says, get up and say it. Get up and do it. You were destined for this. You are the prophet of your future. I have that written on my desk, and I say it all the time on my, my website. You prophesy to your kids. You speak life or... I don't want to say death, but you speak life or death into our families. Amen. That's just the way God designed it. Don't speak the death. He created us to create with our mouth. So call it in. Talk to your children. This is who God says you're going to be. I'm not going by what that piece of paper says. That piece of paper is a fact. It's a fact of a test result from an MRI it's not the truth of God's word. Amen. And I thank God for it because now I go, okay, now I know what to pray. Right. So you don't just throw it out. I talk about that in the book. I have a whole file folder of my daughter's whole life, every test result, everything. And at one point, I picked it up and I go, you're a liar. I'm no longer going to look at you. And I almost threw it in the trash because it's a lie. But somebody years later, I just shoved it on a shelf. And years later, and I talk about this in the book too, but somebody goes, don't throw it away. That's the testimony of God's word. Yeah. And I'm like, you are absolutely right. Yeah. 
so I'm going to leave Tuesday and Daryl will fix all this. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just so thankful to be here. I mean, it's just amazing. You guys, you don't, I have to say, we've been to like four or five churches since we left here and they don't teach the word of God like this. Amen. But I'm going to tell you something else. You don't see any victories either. The words are wonderful, the programs are wonderful, the songs are amazing, the foyers are beautiful, but there's no victory. I don't see it. I'm like, where's the victory? Amen. But you just have to make a decision to go, this is not where I'm going to be. And come hell or high water, I'm coming out. Amen. I'm not staying. Amen. And then you'll have a book. Or maybe you do. Or three or four. But anyway... I have a song that Brooke and I listen to all the time, and it is like our, what, it's on repeat in our home. Actually, if you ever get home, when you look it up, YouTube it and watch the live concert, oh my gosh, but it ministers to our heart, and I want to listen to, I want you to watch it first, and then afterwards, Brooke and I would like to pray over anyone who feels helpless, because I'll break that off of you. And then I'm just going to set you free to let him show you the light. Because, you know, it, it's not going to just happen instantly. Sometimes it does. Sometimes God heals instantly, and it's amazing. I've seen legs grow out. I, I will see a day, I'm going to declare to myself right now, that I will watch Down Syndrome children be completely healed. I will see cerebral palsy children walk. Because that's in, that is where my heart is. I'm going to go, as good as the programs are for these children and as amazing they are, they have amazing support groups. I go, this is not God's best. God wants you alive and well and living a productive life. So anyway, we can just play this. And the words are up there. i uh-huh. 
for people if you um if you want prayer i'm going to ask you to just just make your way up to the front right now if you're going through something right now 